Hello and welcome to Revise, Rebut and Resubmit, a podcast that explores early career researchers' experiences in publishing their first academic paper and which celebrates this important milestone. My name is Jennifer Fitchett and I'm an Associate Professor of Physical Geography, an avid science communicator and a still relatively young academic with a passion for breaking down the barriers and unnecessary mysticism in the publication process. Each episode, I interview a new person on their journey in writing, revising, rebutting, resubmitting, and having their first academic paper published. This podcast is very kindly supported by the DSI-NRF Center of Excellence for Paleosciences. Before entering the academic publishing rat race, Jason resigned from his associate lecturing position at the university to, among other things, write sci-fi novels. So Jason is a published author, but has never had to run the hurdles of academic writing. Today, we discuss the differences and similarities in the writing, revision, and publication of academic literature and fiction. Welcome, Jason. It's lovely to have you on this podcast. Thanks, Jen. So, Jason, you are an unconventional guest because every other guest that I've had on this podcast, my first question is, what was your first paper on and where was it published? And for you, you decided perhaps very wisely not to go the route of writing up your PhD into one or many academic papers. And so just to begin with, some background on, on why you made that decision when so much of the writing and thinking work had already been done in, in putting together the PhD. Yes. So when I submitted my PhD, I got very favorable um, examiner feedback and a lot of them recommended submitting it either as separate articles or trying to publish a monograph or a book out of it. And, you know, with their recommendations, because they were significant in the field, the examiners, I probably could have gotten somewhere uh, with that. But I think psychologically, I had had enough. I felt quite burnt out by the PhD, and I just didn't want to look at the topic again. I loved the topic, which is why I did it. I converted it from a master's. So I did my master's and then converted it to a PhD, which took an extra year's work. But by the end of that process, I'd had enough. And I was yearning for something a bit more creative. Something about the writing style required for academia is very different from the writing style required pretty much for anything else, whether it be fiction or nonfiction outside of academia. And I was quite tired of that very formal writing style. I wanted to write something different. And so I just tried my hand at a short story and it kind of took off. And then I wrote some more. It's really an incredible journey because I think as much as many people will be able to relate to that feeling of both exhaustion, but also being very stifled by the academic writing style and the academic writing process. It's quite terrifying to take that very bold leap and to write fiction, particularly when we've spent so many years being trained and retrained into writing in such a specific style and to such a specific audience. So I think it really is quite remarkable that you took that leap and that that leap was as successful as it, as it has been. But I, I think my first question is, thinking uh, sort of back now at this point in time, and given how much you do still enjoy the topic, and it is still a passion of yours, and philosophy is still a passion of yours, is there a part of you at all that thinks, maybe I should write this up as a monograph now, or maybe I should write this up as an academic paper or series of papers, now that I'm feeling less drained, less burnt out, and I've had the space and distance? 
So I'm not completely out of the philosophy world. I don't lecture anymore, but I do run a philosophy podcast. And ironically, it gives me access to the academic world that's far better than I would have had if I was just an academic. So I'm able to speak to world leaders in every subfield in philosophy on a weekly basis and ask them the questions that I always wanted to ask and to engage with if I were to write academically. So I feel like whatever feeling I get, whatever desire I have to write up a particular thought, instead of doing that, I just present it directly on a podcast to the philosopher that I would be objecting to, because in philosophy, that's what we do. We object to each other. And I get a direct answer, you know, not many months later, after my journal has been rejected and accepted, and their response has been written and accepted, you know, I don't have to wait a year for that or many months. I can just get an immediate response and then hash it out. So I just, I feel like today we have avenues for discussion, which you're exploring on this podcast, which perhaps we just didn't have, perhaps even just pre-COVID. You know, I don't think I could run my philosophy podcast pre-COVID. And so the publication, in inverted commas, that I do now within philosophy is all in the medium of podcasting. And the publication that I do in text is all science fiction writing. And you are right, it's a big change. And I kind of had to unlearn almost all of my methods for writing. So when you write philosophy, you want to write long sentences, you want to write long paragraphs, sophisticated language, lots of abbreviations, lots of jargon, all of those you do not want in fiction writing. Uh, and in my other life, I ran an advertising agency. And a big part of that is writing, writing advertising copy which again has to be written for what they call very low-grade learning. It's got to be written very simply, very punchy, short sentences, one-sentence paragraphs. That's not the way you write in academia. So I had to unlearn everything. And I was just thinking yesterday, I wonder if I could write a philosophy piece now. I would write it like a short story and I don't know if it would work. <laughs> I mean, that might be a really interesting approaches to see whether that gets accepted and whether people are interested in reading it in a very different kind of style. Because I, what really fascinates me is that there's such a push within academia for people to be trained in science communication and to become more actively involved in science communication. And so there's a massive push for writing pieces that are much more accessible to the public through the conversation or producing podcasts, producing videos, producing short stories that really capture key academic findings. And of course, we have no idea where to begin because we're not trained in the kind of writing that is accessible to the public. And so you've almost done it the opposite way around. You've very quickly jumped out before you became locked in that system and now moved back again into that space of philosophy and taking it from the perspective of, as you say, very real-time engagement, speaking to the people who are in the field, debating things live because that's what would be happening through this long-winded publication process and getting those kinds of answers that you would eventually be able to maybe receive if somebody engaged with your piece as part of a much more authentic conversation. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And what's quite ironic about it is that this way it's, it's much more accessible in a way that might work out better in printed form. So uh, a shameless plug here on my podcast is called <laughs> Brain, Brain in a Vat. And so on Brain in a Vat, what we do is we have these discussions with philosophers. We then auto-transcribe them. We send them to an editor who puts them into a format that would make sense in written form, and then we publish them as books. So 
that way we're able to have the discussion very quickly and very efficiently and publish it in a way that is very accessible to, to readers. Because the discussions we have on our podcast, the audience is not meant to be a philosophy knowledgeable audience. It's supposed to be lay people with an interest in philosophy. And so the resulting books are very accessible to everyday people. So far, we've produced two books from the podcast, and we have another three in the pipeline. And the second book that we produced is with two very big name authors in philosophy, who are Thaddeus Metz and David Benatar, and the books on the meaning of life. And if you have a look at kind of traditionally academically published books through Routledge or Oxford um, or Cambridge, the covers are very staid, they don't understand how books should be published to lay people. They don't understand how pricing should work. If you look at traditionally published books within academia, those books cost a lot of money. Textbooks are very, very expensive. We're selling our book for $15, one five. Yeah. And you can't really get a, a textbook for less than 50 these days, $50. So we've priced for the general market and we're getting fantastic sales of that book. With Thaddeus Metz and David Benatar are the world experts on the meaning of life. And it's written in an incredibly accessible way. And we got them to engage with each other at the end of the book and objection and response to each other, which isn't available in the academic literature. So it, it's felt to me like exploring these other methods of expressing, you know, philosophical and academic ideas can result in a better book on the topic. So I, I think one has to think quite outside the box when it comes to publishing these days. I think what's incredible about the path you've taken is that it's forced you to think outside of the box and it's forced you to approach things from a very different angle. and the kind of thing that would be very difficult for us to do. And, and perhaps even somebody like David Benatar would be unlikely to have reached that point without the intervention of, of you and your co-host, because that is such an out-of-the-box way of thinking. And we are all encouraged to go down the, the route of the, the Routledges and the Oxfords and the Cambridges and pick one out of 15 set book covers. And so yours will look exactly like everyone else's. And uh, you'll have ridiculous arguments with the publishing house about whether you're allowed to have one cohesive reference list or a reference list at the end of each chapter because their publication model and their way of earning income is about trying to sell off now individual chapters, which are not even meaningful in the context of a monograph. And so again, turning it on its head and saying, start with the conversation, record the conversation, and then turn that into a, a book that is readable by the general public, that's priced for the general public and gets these ideas out there because it, surely that's what we're trying to achieve through any form of publication. Yes, yeah, so I, I, I can appreciate and value the traditional model of peer review. You know, it makes a lot of sense to me to peer review. You don't want junk being pushed out. But there might be other methods to achieve quality control other than peer review. Because the, the problem with the peer review process is that it takes so long. You, you know, you submit, you submit a piece. I'm sure your previous guests have discussed this. You submit a piece. By the way, I did submit one chapter from my PhD. Uh, and the process took nine months. And in the end, I got one rejection, one acceptance, and the rejection carried. And so it was rejected. And I just sat with this feeling of, okay, am I ready to rewrite this, submit again, wait another nine months for another possible rejection? Or can I just publish my next novel, yeah. uh, actually three in the next nine months. I was publishing one every three months at one point. So it, ju it just felt like a much more efficient route. My point is there might be methods other than peer review. And one of those is letting the market decide 
books that are well written will rise to the top and they will be sold more often. Now, of course, you might say, well, there's certain books that won't do that. A very technical academic text will not have a very large readership, but it's still very valuable. And perhaps there's still a niche for those kind of texts within the peer review process. But I think a lot of publication is not like that. A lot of publication will have a ready audience. And perhaps our, our job as academics is to try and phrase what we do in a way that is more accessible to people outside of our immediate discipline. I mean, with philosophy, these are some of the most complex debates that there are. And yet for our podcast and for our books, we have to have them in ways that are still accessible to everyone. And that's been very challenging and has really pushed us uh, to do that well. And I think the result has been good publications that are not just valuable for the layman, but also for philosophers. So it's a very interesting point that good books will be the ones that fly. But what about this predominance at the moment of books written by celebrities that also do incredibly well because of the name of the person? So you can be a Kardashian or you could be on Love Island or you could be on any of the other big names of the moment and write a book. And just because you are on that show, your book will sell because there is a huge following uh, of the show. There's a huge following for reality TV or whatever it might be. And perhaps that same problem would perpetuate in academia where only the people who've already made it, who already have a name for themselves, who already have fame in that field would be the ones to rise to the surface. And that all of these early career researchers and students who are trying to get themselves out there would be even more squashed than they already are. Well, there's a few possible responses. One is that the traditional model doesn't actually stop that from happening. So you might say it's a double-blind peer-reviewed process, and so there's no preconceptions on behalf of the readers to decide which articles will be accepted or rejected from journals. But the reality is that those reviewers know the literature, yeah. and they know the big names, they know their writing styles, they know, they know their content. And so when another paper comes in, that's just a rehashing of the same, they say, oh, well, this is probably such and such, and we've got to publish this. And so even though it's in theory, uh, double blind, in practice, it's really not. You know, the other thing is that on the other, the other side of the coin, you've got authors who, who break through in the book market as well. Even though they're not a Kardashian, they still manage to break through um, and sell a lot of copies of their books. And there's different methods for doing that. One method it is to write a really good book. And another one is to write something very controversial and unique. Another one is to pair up with, with celebrities and find a way through. Perhaps one way of thinking about this is that although certain genres are going to carry the day, so like the Kardashian genres are going to sell more, you might not want to compare yourself with Kardashians. You might want to co compare yourself with people within your genre. Um, and you'd be surprised how the kind of readership of certain genres. Like philosophy is a very niche a subject, but there's a, there's a YouTube channel on philosophy run by a guy named Cosmic Skeptic, who's an Oxford student, and he has over a million subscribers. So, you know, philosophy channel, and it's pretty hardcore philosophy, you know, so you are able to break into the market, even as a relative unknown. Yeah, and I think that's a really important couple of points that you've made. One about the review process and the fact that as double blind as it might be, and, and actually often in, in fields that I work in, it's, it's single blind. So people do know exactly who you are. And I've certainly had experiences where they make it very clear to me that they know who I am and what my place might be. 
but that it isn't as blind as we'd like it to be and it's not as equitable as we'd like it to be. Um, but then also about comparing like for like, and I think it's so important in any form of publication and in any field is to say, who are you competing with? And do you actually need to compete with anyone to begin with? And then are you picking the right crowd that you are competing with or marking yourself against? And don't try and compare yourself to the Kardashians if that's not what you're doing. So I want to ask you a bit about self-publication because you, of course, went that route with your sci-fi novels and now uh, with the books that you're writing based on the podcast. And to talk a bit about that, because I think in many ways that really is the polar opposite of the academic peer review process run through journals where the journals are getting reviewers who are not being paid and the journals are charging people for the outputs. And I mean, there's so many problems with that system. And self-publication is really the opposite end of the spectrum because you don't even have to run the hurdles of writing a proposal to a publisher and getting them to support you or not. And to, in whether large extent or small extent, frame what it is that you're allowed to write about or encourage you to alter that or frame it in a particular way for a particular audience. So I'd like to know why you chose that route and then how you see sort of the quality control process playing out beyond what we've already discussed of, of good books will float to the surface. Yeah, so that's very interesting. I mean, obviously there's this worry that self-published work is just junk, right? So it, it never has to go through this quality control mechanism of having a publisher or a peer reviewer in the case of academia. And so, you know, uh, millions and millions of authors can just pump work out and just put it in the ether and it's just junk. <laughs> and I don't doubt that there is a lot of junk out there. I mean, I don't doubt it. I, I run a, a publishing company uh, for, it, it's a, basically a self-publishing company. So I help other authors self-publish and I self-publish my own books. And I do get junk come across my desk. Don't tell anyone I said this, but <laughs> I do. I get junk come across my desk and some people just write trash. But the thing is, when you try to advertise trash, it's not going to sell and you're going to spend more on the advertising than you are on the sales. And so very quickly, those authors are just going to stop advertising. The book will not sell organically without advertising, and it, it just drops to the bottom. Yeah. So there's not a control around what gets published, but there is a control around what rises to the top, the bestseller lists, basically. Mm -hmm. I agree, perhaps the general average standard reduces but there's so many more books that get published that the number of good books increases compared with a world where there's only traditional publishing and no self-publishing. Why did I choose it personally? Well, a number of reasons. You mentioned one, which is I didn't want anyone to control what I could write. Um, I write very dark science fiction. I don't know if you've seen Blade Runner or Altered Carbon or Black Mirror. It's very dark sci-fi with plenty of colorful words in it and, and violence. And I didn't want a publisher saying, take that out. So that was, that was one part. The second part is I was very curious about advertising. So I was very curious, can I make money out of this book by advertising it? And if you publish traditionally, you get a very small percentage of every sale. You'll get between five and 10% of every sale. If you're lucky, and, and if you publish through a US publisher, you probably get half of that because you have a literary agent as well who gets half. And so you can't advertise your books because if you advertise your books, you're spending 100% of the advertising cost. 
and only making five to ten percent of every sale. So there's no way you can break even. And so you are totally beholden to your publisher to do advertising, and they're just not incentivized to do that. They're not incentivized to advertise your book over the next book that they publish, which is newer and better. And so your book has a very short shelf life. Generally, publishers will not do any promotion of your book after six months unless it's an exceptionally good seller. And so you have six months to make whatever sales you're going to make for the lifetime of the book effectively. And after that, that's it. And you don't own the rights to that book. You can't do anything more with it. And that's that's that. Whereas as a self-publisher, my series I wrote from about nine, 10 years ago, I'm still advertising that first book in the series today, you know, on and off when I feel like it, when I feel that it's profitable, I can go back to it anytime and just resurrect it with some advertising. And it was, by the way, through that advertising that I started my advertising business because I learned how to advertise my books and then advertise more authors' books. And that became a fully fledged, a full fledged advertising industry. But the, the thing is, I couldn't have done that if I had published traditionally. I could only advertise and make a profit off my books if it was done privately. So I think something that's really interesting about the path you've taken is that to get to where you've got to, you've learned a huge amount in very disparate fields to what you studied. You've really got a very strong grasp on how to publish, how to run a publishing business, how to advertise. And one of the things that I think is a huge barrier to early career researchers is that they think that the publication process is incredibly opaque and they don't know where to begin. And and importantly, they don't know what they don't know. So they don't even know where to start Googling something. But I think this is even more extreme because it's jumping out of everything you've learned and starting from scratch. And I think that's actually really valuable for people to see is that you can't just sit and wait for somebody, whether it's your supervisor, whether it's uh, the university, whether it's the publishing houses to come and, and chat to you, but you actually can't wait for people to come and explain the system to you. Sometimes you need to just go out there and, and figure it out. So what, what was that process for you of figuring out? Was it a process of curiosity and Googling or a much more in-depth process of really getting to, to grips with it and how much trial and error was involved in getting to the point where this was really successful? Yeah, I mean, it, there was a ton of trial and error and that trial and error both took time and money. I spent a lot of money on courses, on failed advertising that, that made losses. I, I spent a lot of time pursuing avenues that didn't work out. And eventually what helped most was getting into contact with other authors who were doing this, self-published authors. So um, blessing for me was Facebook. So by the way, most of my advertising is run on Facebook. But in addition to that, the people I connected with were on Facebook. So I found other self-published um, author groups. So groups of thousands of other authors who were trying to do this and who had systems that worked and were willing to share them. And it was just enormously helpful to get in contact with those other authors, both for information, but also we would cross-promote. So one of the mechanisms that self-published authors use is we build up a mailing list, an email list of rabid readers, and then we will promote other authors' books on our email lists, and they'll promote our books on theirs. And the philosophy of self-published authors is a rising sea benefits all ships, you know, so, so we together kind of raise each other up rather than a very kind of cutthroat feeling of, okay, it, it's a zero-sum game. Who gets into this journal? It's my piece or your piece. And so there's no benefit 
to me trying to help you get your piece published if mine is competing with yours. In the fiction world, there's so many readers that it doesn't matter whether someone else gets their book published or not. Uh, so long as you help each other out, you'll both be in a better place. It's not a zero-sum game. So the overall process was plenty of trial and error, plenty of wasted money. I did a, I did a calculation um, the other day, and I looked at the the first five years of advertising that I ran, and I, and I used a few hundred thousand rands worth of advertising, and I managed to break even on those first few years. Yeah. And it was only after that that I started to make profits. And yeah, it, it does take time. Part of why I run my business is to short, shortcut that, short circuit that process for a lot of other people so that they don't have to spend five years of learning and pumping in their own money into advertising and the time required. I, I do it for them. And there are shortcuts to this. So I, I offer kind of a hybrid between traditional publishing and self-publishing, which is people pay me a fee for me to walk them through the process, yeah. which they could do on their own, but would probably do badly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think really interesting point you raise about this perception of a zero sum game, because I think even in academia, it's a false perception. Because we're at a point now where there are so many journals, and particularly in the sciences, I mean, it might, it might not be the case in philosophy, but in the sciences, there are so many journals, international, local, various different lists that they appear on. And I don't think it is true that if a student keeps all this knowledge to themselves, they figured out publication and, and they're going to keep it hush-hush, that they have any better chance of getting published. I don't think that they have a, a better chance if they share the information or don't, but I, I think it could benefit many other people. And it is one of the aims of this podcast is to try and demystify that process because I don't believe that I'm going to have any more competition in publishing in any of the journals I send to just because I'm helping early career researchers along the process. And so I think very similar to the company that you formed, helping people walk the process of self-publishing. I think is really valuable for people who've managed to understand at least part of the processes of, of academic publishing. I still get rejections all the time, so I'm not going to say I've cracked this, but to be able to share and say, this is what an impact factor is, or this is how I choose the journal that I send my work to, or this is how I respond to reviewer comments and how I draw up my table of responses. And I think it is a huge problem that academia creates this environment where people are terrified of sharing knowledge because they think that that is this intellectual property of that knowledge is something that cannot be distributed because you will then lose out. And I don't think that that's necessarily true. But that said, it, it might be the case that particularly in, in the humanities and in fields like philosophy, there may be a case where there are so few journals where it's such a close community that there perhaps are some losses to be made in being too open about the skills or the knowledge or the insider information that there may be. That's very interesting. I, I'm curious when you say there's kind of a proliferation of science journals, I don't think that's the case in philosophy, but what I find interesting about that is I wonder how much of that is driven because the original publishing model for journals is no longer as profitable or profitable at all. It may be that other models are required, and so that's why there's there are all these new journals popping up. So I'm not sure how many of them are, are new, and I, I know of one new journal uh, because a colleague of mine had set it up and he had asked me to submit to it because they need to accumulate a certain number of papers before they can get their accreditation for that journal. But I think it is because 
in the sciences, if you do work that's remotely interdisciplinary, and mine is very dis interdisciplinary, that there are specialist journals for every possible topic. And, and they've broken away from each other a very, very long time ago. So in climatology, there's five different very specific climatology journals that I regularly submit to. And then I can step away and it's slightly applied. And so then there's another five or six applied journals. And then I can move across to something quite broad, such as the South African Journal of Science, which will take anything that's scientifically related. So part of that is also just trawling the accreditation lists and, and seeing what journals are out there. And I've come across some really interesting ones. I submitted work to the Journal of Mountain Science, which I had no idea existed. And there they take anything that involves mountains. So they might even take philosophy if it involved a mountain. They're really quite keen for random things because this was a, a paper on tourism. But I think that what you're saying, though, does have some truth to it, that it, it does reveal some of the failings of that academic publishing model, that if there are so many journals and you now have access to all of that on Google Scholar or Scopus or Web of Science, that what are we achieving through that process? And, and again, would we, would we achieve more by self-publishing? Would we achieve more by putting all of our work up uh, and preprint servers are, of course, then the, the route through which this is starting to happen, that people put up the first version of their paper on a preprint server the moment they're done, and comments come in through the preprint server, and while it's under peer review, and often they accumulate far more citations during that, that time that is in the preprint server than they do for the rest of the time that is in a journal, probably behind a paywall. Yes, I'm going to make a prediction as a science fiction author that <laughs> this is going to become a more and more open field. Journals are going to become more and more open access. There's going to be less and less peer review. Peer review process is going to be whittled down. And you're going to see a marketplace of ideas rather than um, a curated list of articles that are published. Over time, I think it's inevitable. I, th I think that the institution is going to slowly degrade and that over time there's going to be an appetite for volume of work rather than curated work. And I don't think this is a bad future. Yeah, I think this is probably a brilliant place to draw this episode to a close because these kinds of predictions, I think, are being made both inside and outside of academia and have benefit both inside and outside of academia. And processes such as the IPCC bringing together 1,400 papers on climate science to produce a readable report, I think, is one of the types of things in that space. I think blogging is part of it, writing for the conversation, podcasting. And as you say, some of it will be because of the academic system falling apart and the academic publishing system falling apart. But some of it's also about people recognizing who the customer is, who the person on the receiving end is and, and where the value is there. Thank you, Jen. Well, thank you very much, Jason. It's been wonderful having you on this podcast and really, I think, very insightful for people who just want to rethink the writing process and rethink what writing really is and why we do it rather than just following a set of procedures because the academic world has taught us those and ingrained them in us. So thank you very much for joining. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revise, Rebut and Resubmit. Hopefully it's given you some insight into the process of academic writing and approaching that first academic paper. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to listen to more of this show, please subscribe to this podcast. A huge thanks again to the Centre of Excellence for Paleoscience 
for supporting this work.